Hello, my name is Tyke Spaulding. And I'm Parker Beal. Uh, this is a podcast for Dr. Reynolds' Modernization in Non-Western Society class, and today we're going to be talking about industrialization in post-independence Ireland. This is for a final project. Um, both of us are, we have always loved history, mm-hmm. it's always been something we're very interested in, and Tig is definitely more Irish than me, It's true. both Irish. Yeah. Uh, I have to wear a coat of sunscreen at all times or else yep. I'll evaporate. So. Exactly. And, uh, and I can I, actually stare into the sun. And I hate British people, so, you know, it all you makes sense. Got that in mm-hmm. So uh, a little bit, uh, one more thing about ourselves. We're going to just basically go through our majors mm-hmm. um, kind of as our uh, qualification section. So I am history major with a uh, dual major in secondary education. Parker? Um, I am a history and a sociology major, um, and then I've got focus areas in anthropology and public history. Yeah, so... We're both both juniors, aren't we? Yeah. 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 Anyway, uh, we're going to go ahead and jump into the first uh, piece of this, which is kind of just a general overview of modernization, um, development, um, colonialism, particularly uh, settler colonialism, which is really, really tied to Irish history. Absolutely. And, and the way that yeah. Ireland now interacts with other countries exactly, and other places yeah. that have lived un- under occupation. Yeah, and uh, we'll also be just briefly touching on the history of Ireland in this section. So, Parker, go ahead. What's Talk about um, kind of some definitions of modernization, industrialization, colonialism, and in particular, settler colonialism. Yes, absolutely. So, modernization, it's a multidimensional process of social change Um, It transforms the social, cultural, economic, and political organization of society. Um, So basically, modernization is kind of what spurs on industrialization. That's kind of the way I like to think of it, of there has to be social change and there has to be, you know, some sort of infrastructure put in place before a country can industrialize. And industrialization is the process of transforming the economy of a nation or region from a focus on agriculture to a reliance on manufacturing. Um, in the case of Ireland, it was moving from a typically pretty agrarian society. Mm-hmm. Most of their traditions and most of their cultural impact had to do with, ow, just slam my leg on the table, um, had to do with, you know, living off the land, you know, being farmers, all that kind of stuff. Um, so kind of modernization and industrialization, industrialization together it's kind of like, okay, we are leaning more towards a more, like, quote-unquote liberal, um, secular society than a agrarian, kind of rural, traditionally Catholic society. And that's also not to say that Ireland still isn't super Catholic. Mm-hmm. Both of us were raised Catholic. Yes. It's still a thing. But. Yeah. Yeah, so the key to those... Um, those definitions, and, and Parker kind of touched on it, what, is kind of what does that mean for Ireland, and what, how can we kind of view that through the lens of Ireland's uh, historical timeline, right? So a little bit briefly about the history of Ireland, right? Um, uh, much like the rest of Britain, uh, of the British Isles, um, a pretty uh, disparate set of... Um, 
uh, tribes and clans um, vying for control. Uh, it was like yeah. any other place in the world that you know had not been fully formed into what we know as a nation or society. Right. Right. Um, pretty pretty similar to how, particularly before the fall of the Roman or before the late Roman Empire. Um, Kind of, kind of was a Roman backwater even more than so like than Britain. Two hundred AD. Uh, yeah. So yeah. two hundred, three hundred AD. There are new artifacts being found, um, showing some settlement uh, in trade between uh, Rome um, and various Irish groups, but there isn't the same level of Roman uh, footprint in Ireland yeah. as there is in Britain. Yeah. So. Um, you can kind of see that as well with, with, with names. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, London is based off of London, what is it, London, London Inium, or it's a very Latin, Latin. name, yep. but, uh, Ireland is, a lot of the places around Ireland have, uh, Gaelic or, um, Norse origins and names, yes, so, right. So in um, the early 400s, uh, Ireland had already been kind of experiencing Christianity, um, Roman Catholicism, but the first official um, uh, bishop was sent to Ireland by Pope Celeste I. Back up real quick. This is honestly just a random question. Um, But didn't, like, the red hair gene come from Scandinavia to Ireland, or was it the other way around? I'm not entirely sure. It's a very good question because there are reports of a lot of red-headed Scandinavians, oh, yeah. a lot of red-headed Absolutely. Viking raiders, but uh, we we don't really yeah. know. No matter what, it's an interesting cross-section of right. you know two cultures that we don't typically think of as being connected, right? Yeah. And uh, we'll we'll kind of touch on it very very soon. That trying to find. Um, any level of genetic uh, follow-through is pretty tough, especially with Ireland. Um, part of that is because uh, throughout the 9th and 10th and 11th century, uh, Ireland was taking part in kind of the period known as the Dane Law, um, where uh, various um, Vikings from uh, Scandinavian kingdoms, mainly Denmark, uh, and uh, what we now know as Norway, were kind of um, setting up permanent residence in England, challenging uh, a lot of the established power base. It's where you kind of get the story of um, Viking uh, raiders overthrowing Northumbria and really battling it out with the kingdom of Wessex. Um, Vikings were pretty heavily involved in Ireland. Dublin, which means uh, Black Pools, uh, that's where that name comes from in Scandinavian uh, or Old Norse. It was a pretty heavy um, slave trade port. So that's when we talk about genetics. It's very difficult. Vikings have been known to kind of intermix with yeah. local populations. Yeah, that's kind of absolutely. how they how the they Vikings roll. were not a homogenous group. Right, exactly. So and and we've seen now through through different findings that the Vikings were everywhere oh, from yeah. the Kievan Rus to uh, to even some areas of the Middle East, yeah, um, and just, definitely Constantinople. I just read a um, article and wrote a little 
short answer question about um, Norse contact with the indigenous people, like pre pre European contact mm. of Greenland. Yeah, very very interesting. Right. So I mean, it just shows that, and and the Vikings did deal a lot in slavery. Yes. So a lot of different uh, people groups cycling in and out of Dublin, mm-hmm. but. Um, uh, in um, the mid uh, 11th century, uh, High King Brian um, of Ireland united the disparate I- Irish groups and kind of pushed the Vikings out of Ireland. And for a time, Ireland went back to what much of the British Isles was uh, a series of warring clans and states, um, very, very similar to Scotland. Um, so that, that kind of persisted until the Normans swept through. Absolutely. Um, Cause I mean, they were in a weak spot already. They were right. disorganized. They disorganized. Were the Normans saw a chance and they took it. And the Normans had the experience and in invasion, uh, having just, just conquered, uh, England. Um, so that kind of gets us into the main, um, the main, yeah, main occupation, the main uh, lasting um, trend of English-oriented um, colonialism. Um, towards the 1400s, uh, Ireland had been rebelling. Ireland uh, was pushed by different rebels in Scotland to join up. But throughout all this time, up until, you know, really independence, um, kind of what Parker touched upon, settler colonialism, though it wasn't as uh, formalized, was was really getting its bones, at least for um, England and the, and the British, the nascent British Empire. Ireland was the spot where it was becoming you know, the most uh, developed. Yes, absolutely. It was, you know, I hate to call it this, but Ireland was kind of the guinea pig for British settler colonialism. Right. Um, You know, the assimilation, the constant, you know, depriving Irish people of its resources, tariffs, Mm -hmm. everything. Basically anything that you can think of as colonialism happened right so uh, and and that's that's super important for this discussion about industrialization because uh not only were very wealthy landowners moving into ireland a lot of time uh native irish catholic uh landowners were being dispossessed of their land and that land was being given to protestant uh noblemen or protestant businessmen which is pretty much the definition of what settler colonialism exactly so what what does this mean for ireland kind of heading through into the early 19th century um you know ireland had rebelled many many times in fact uh french soldiers had landed in ireland to support rebellion Uh, unfortunately these efforts were um, crushed whether that be by the English kings or uh, through Cromwell, which is one of the most famous um, instances of Irish repression um, during the English Civil War. So into the 1800s. 
yeah, Cromwell is, yeah, I mean, Cromwell is one of the most dastardly pieces of trash. Like, I mean, we don't even need to, he was bad. Like, once again, (laughs) pretty much any crappy thing that you can think of a historical figure doing. Yeah, Cromwell, Cromwell, Cromwell Cromwell perfected it. So... That bring, right. I mean, well, that that brings us into arguably the most infamous time in Irish history: the Irish Potato Famine from 1845 to 52. Um, a million died. Uh, two million fled Ireland. Um, That's also when we really start seeing the trend of emigration from Ireland into you know many many different parts of the world. Right. Um, and I'm going to talk more about that later when we yeah. talk about modernization. Right. And a lot of those people went to the United States or fled to Canada. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, from that point, um, nationalism in Ireland, I mean, really any sympathy for the British essentially was was gone. And... Uh, Throughout the late 1800s, Irish independence movements, the Finian Brotherhood, um, uh, the Molly Maguire Society really popped up to try to preserve the Irish language and to find a way to achieve Irish independence. Now, moderates pushed for something called home rule, where Ireland would still be part of the British Empire, but they would have their own parliament to help decide on local issues, um, while more radical... um, actors push for full independence. And that's kind of where uh, we we reach the arguably the second most infamous thing from uh, pre-independence Ireland, which is the Easter Rising in 1916, um, aided by arms from the German Empire. Uh, Ireland, um, many Irish revolutionaries saw it as an opportunity to break away. And so um, they they took up that opportunity and rebelled, though it was crushed. It kind of set a precedent, and uh, that led into the Anglo-Irish War in 1919 to 1921, where Irish independence was achieved uh, in 1922. Um, and, and importantly, the first form of the IRA, the Irish Republican Army, was created. Yes. Um, that was also that was like during that conflict, wasn't right? It? Yes. Yeah. And so in 1922, um, those unhappy with the treaty uh, signed by Ireland and Britain um, rebelled again, causing the Irish Civil War uh, between the provisional government and the anti-treaty factions of the IRA, which was another bloody conflict. But um, after that, uh, the provisional government stabilized and Ireland became a republic on April 18th, 1949. Um, And that kind of gets into the uh, question of what has Ireland been like uh, industrially since since their independence in 1949? Yeah, so as I talked about earlier, you know, traditionally Ireland has had a very agricultural economy. Um, Any goods they did produce were produced from raw goods into stuff like, you know, textiles, Mm. raw food, all of that kind of Mm -hmm. stuff. Um, They, when the industrialization, or the industrial revolution really kicked off during the beginning of the, um, of the 19th century, you know, 
Ireland did not have the means to industrialize when everyone else started because of the um, 1880 Acts of Union Accords where um, Great Britain disillusion or not disillusion, I keep using the wrong words, disassembled the Irish Parliament after mm-hmm. the, um, what was it, 1798? Yeah, 70, yeah. Yes. Led by mainly the Finian Brotherhood. Yes. Yeah. Um, they also did not have the same natural resources that Great Britain was able to have, like mm. the uh, plenty and wealthy amounts of um, coal and iron yeah. in England. Um, they just did not have those same natural resources. And even if they did, England would have taken them all. Um, but when Ireland gains independence, it is still largely agricultural. And um, the little amount of factories and industry they did have was focused on transforming raw agricultural goods into products. Mm. Um, and then in 1932, Ireland finally begins industrialization efforts. Um, they kind of based it on like that strong nationalism that was present during that time in Ireland as you know recently independent, still trying to form a national identity. Um, but this industrialization effort really piggybacked off of that um, nationalistic spirit that was building in Ireland at the time. Um, Would you also say that there's a geographical divide as well? Because um, it seems like uh, one of the reasons why England wanted to keep Northern Ireland in its possession was because a vast majority of the industrialization that had taken place on the island was focused on Ulster and those northern areas. Would you say, besides Dublin, uh, a lot of that industrialization pre-independence had taken place in the north of the country? Yes, absolutely. And, um, you know, one of the biggest problems for Ireland, um, independent Ireland, industrializing was because they were cut off completely from, you know, that those Northern Ireland mm-hmm. resources. Um, beside, like you said, besides Dublin, there were almost no factories, almost no, like, nothing besides a very small agrarian economy, like, in the rural parts mm-hmm. of Ireland at that time. So, I would say that, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when they began the industrialization efforts, um, they really wanted to focus on Irish economy and did not want to become a foreign-based economy um, and did not want to have to import everything they needed, which completely understandable. They had seen how that kind of dicked over countries in the past of trying to focus on a import-only economy. Um, So they imposed really high tariffs and import quotas that were imposed to protect from foreign competition. Um, And then I already talked about that nationalistic spirit. Mm -hmm. Um, So... It pretty much remained agriculturally oriented until like the mid-1950s. Um, and the public spirit about industrialization at that time was, it. the public did not have a positive response to industrialization. It was looked down on and it wasn't desirable because it was too expensive and farming was seen as the ideal way of life. It was closer to God, closer to man. And you know, a lot, especially Irish Catholics thought that industrializing too rapidly or industrializing industrializing at all. Do you guys realize how hard that word is to say? It's a lot of syllables. It's a lot of syllables. It's a lot of noises in one mouth, and I can't do it. But I'm going to, because I'm strong. 
Um, but it it pretty much was looked down on. Mm. Um, but as Ireland, the government of Ireland at that time continued to push for industrialization, they really had to put like a positive spin on what industrialization could mean for Ireland. Um, so around 1950, around 138,000 people worked in manufacturing. So that's really only 10% of the workforce at that time. Um, there were really high rates of emigration, as we've talked about earlier. Um, low wages were at any job you could find, not great. Um, the unemployment rate was very high. I think it was around 12%. Hmm. But even that, I might be lowballing it. Um, and honestly, like it was just a very depressing social climate to live in. In pretty much all the like historical-based documents that I researched for this, it was, everyone was like, everyone was really, really sad in the 1950s in Ireland. And I get it. Yeah. I get it. I would also probably be very depressed if I lived in Ireland yeah, in the 1950s. In the 50s. Um, so... In 1958, the government had kind of looked around and been like, okay, we cannot continue to be a functioning country, or we cannot become a functioning country on the global and capitalist scale if we continue with this. So they launched the first program for economic development. Um, it was it was unlike the economic outlook up until then, those tariffs were kind of stripped away and it was more about it was more about combining Irish economy with a foreign economy because mm-hmm. um, they realized okay we can't just like we need to have some sort of foreign input into our economy otherwise we're never going to be recognized as like a functioning civilization right. quote unquote um So they used incentives like cash grants for factory building. So that would include everything from buying the land to getting the machinery for that factory. Um, Tax exemptions for export profits. I think it was um, the first 15 years of export profits were tax exempt. Um, And training grants for people who like did not have typical access to education. Um, You were able to become a trained laborer without having to, you know, spend your life's wages for it. Yeah. Um, it was also really p- good for the companies that were, and for the factories, because labor during this time in Ireland was fairly cheap. Mm-hmm. You know, it like I said, everyone was already living on low la- wages, so if they're a little less low b- than before, they're going to take it, you know? Um, and at the same time, they really focused on portraying this image of Ireland to the rest of the world that, you know, we, like, we're a good country, we are strong, you know, we're developing our economy, all that stuff. So they spent a lot of money on foreign adverts in at least 12 countries, including the United States and Canada. Mm. And then that rate kind of continued um, and industrialization continued. And by 
1972, there were 668 factories, um, and about 75% of them were foreign-owned. Um, I think around 220 of them were Irish-owned companies, um, and during that time, almost 60,000 new jobs were produced. Mm-hmm. Um, so the unemployed employee, unemployment rate also really, really lowered during this time. Um, and most factories, instead of being focused on um, agricultural products, they were focused on electrical equipment and technological goods. Um, so really, very quickly industrializing to kind of catch up with the rest of the world. Mm. Um, there was also a really large push on and push and focus on urbanizing cities and parts of Ireland besides Dublin, because you know the Irish government looked at Dublin and then looked at the rest of you know pretty rural areas of Ireland and were like, okay, we need to we need to make sure that all of our economy and everything that we do is not just focused on Dublin. Right. Um, so that's when you see like cities like Galway becoming more urban areas um, and cities like Munster, Cork. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. Um, uh, but, but I lost my spot in my notes. Yes. Okay. And more factories were built in rural areas. So um, there would be, you know, very small farming towns where a foreign, most likely a foreign company would set up shop there. Mm. Um, and during this time, there were also a lot of support for public infrastructure, which did, I will never say that public, you know, supporting and funding public infra- infrastructure is a bad thing, but the amount they did it did put them into a debt deficit in the 1980s when the world was already in a recession. So it did kind of screw them over a bit, yeah. but that was more on... Um, on the government itself than anything else. I mean, there's one, there's another huge aspect that we're also kind of glossing over is like, do you think that the 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 troubles, uh, which if you don't know, it's a period of sectarian violence between Catholic uh, Republicans and Protestant uh, North Northern Irish uh, militiams, um, series of violence bombings, murders, kidnapping. Uh, do you believe that that's kind of a um, kind of a deficit to Ireland's foreign investment? Like, do you think that that... I'm sure it probably had some impact, but I also think that because the United States at this time was a pretty big supporter of Ireland mm-hmm. and, you know, helped... It facilitated the treaty agreements between... Ireland and Great Britain at this time. Yeah. So if Ireland did experience any sort of, and I'm sure it probably did because that's just what happens when revolutions happen. Yeah, when, um, there's, when there's violence and a, and a, or destabilization. Exactly, in a but area. I do think that the worst of it was prevented because of American support for yeah. Ireland. I gotcha. And... Uh, the end of the troubles ended with the Good Friday Agreements mm-hmm. in 1998. Do you think that that does that uh, with your own research coincide with when Ireland's uh, economic bubble started yeah. to or uh, economic status started to grow? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they were already trying to recover 
from that global recession and from mm-hmm. that debt deficit um, that they accrued during the like 80s and early 90s. Mm-hmm. Um, but I definitely do think that, you know, the kind of pacification of the movement with the Good Friday agreements definitely really helped, A, improve the image of Ireland and Irish people around the world. Right. And also really helped improve the image of Irish economy, too. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So uh, that kind of leads us, you know, Ireland is now, you know, one of the one of the most um, or is one of the wealthiest countries yeah. per during, capita. During these 30 years, the GDP of Ireland more than doubled. Mm. It, yeah. And unemployment was cut in half. Um, and by 1972, most of the world did consider Ireland to be like an industrialized economy. Right. Um, so, yeah. And a lot of, you know, a lot of Ireland's modern um, wealth is coming from their status as a, as a good spot for financial uh, services. It's a good spot for um, uh, technology development, um, be that silicone chip manufacturing or um, that, that, that aforementioned technical services. So Ireland also uh, put in a lot of effort of changing their image is being a place that's friendly for foreign companies, and you kind of touched on that, um, not only through uh, great labor, but also through um, kind of uh, a much more um, lenient tax system. Absolutely. Right. And I, um, like from 1985 onward, the Irish government also really put a, um, a lot of importance on shifting Ireland from a place that people emigrate from to somewhere that people emigrate immigrate to. Right. You know, they really wanted to and I think even now they're still like I just saw something where it was like the Irish government will pay you like seventy five thousand dollars to go live on, you know, one of the lower populated islands. Right. So, you know, Ireland is still putting a lot of importance on, you know, being welcome to foreigners and and I've also heard a lot of like black travelers being like, Ireland is the best place I visited right. in Europe and the place where I felt the most safe. Well, and that kind of leads us into our final our final aspect of this talk about like Ireland's unique development as a as a geographically western country, but a country that's relatively late to the industrializing game mm-hmm. in Europe. Um, it's kind of Ireland's middle of the road approach to foreign policy, right? So Ireland was not invited to the UN initially because of their neutrality in World War II. When did they join the UN? Um, I think they joined oh, in the 50s, I believe. So it mm. took them a while to yes. join the UN. Yeah. Um, and during the Cold War, they were largely neutral. They kind of joined the non-aligned faction with Yugoslavia and Sweden. Mm-hmm. Um, and they supported various causes during that time. They showed support for Cuba. They showed support for Angolan independence. Yes. Um, Ireland has also been a huge contributor to UN peacekeeping forces, especially in the 60s. Mm-hmm. Um, some of the most well-known examples are um, kind of in the uh, conflicts, especially in, in uh, decolonizing Africa. Yes, um, Particularly in the Congo. Yes. Um, yeah. 
And, you know, the final aspect of this is, is, is Ireland's modern relationship to a lot of nations that we would consider developing or underdeveloped. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, particularly Cuba and Palestine. So yes. yeah. um, Fidel Castro was the son of Gaelic immigrants. Mm-hmm. Um, che Guevara has connections to Irish roots. Both of those men um, commented extensively on their love of Ireland, particularly the rebellious nature of the Irish people. And just recently, Ireland and Cuba have signed numerous bilateral treaties kind of supporting trade and mutual education, especially education on health, uh, which makes sense. Uh, Cuba has the most developed healthcare system of all of Latin America. Yes. So um, that willingness for Ireland to work with Cuba, despite kind of its rocky relationship, particularly with the United States. Yeah. It's a testament. I mean, it's, you know, Cuba has basically been blacklisted by the global economy. Right. So, in in kind of speaking of being blacklisted, I mean, um, Palestine is, was deemed, uh, you know, throughout the, Palestine has always been on Ireland's radar. Yes, absolutely. Um, In the 60s, during the Six-Day War, uh, Ireland kind of vocally said that the most concerned area of Irish foreign policy in the Middle East is what happens to the, pa- the Palestinian refugees. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Ireland was also the first country to endorse a Palestinian state in 1980. Mm-hmm. And um, kind of just on a local level, murals are extremely common throughout Ireland, relating their struggles with occupation to the struggles faced by Palestinians yeah. in their occupation by Israel. Yeah. Um, we've also seen throughout Ireland's parliament pretty vocal um, condemnations of Israel. Israel has responded in kind with pretty egregious accusations of Ireland. Yeah, Yeah. I mean, I've been following a lot of what Sean Fain is saying about, you know, Palestine and the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and just, you know, the amount of support and warmth and compassion that they extend to Palestinians. Like, it just... Yeah. It's amazing. And and if you don't know, Sinn Fein is an Irish political organization that yes. was started kind of in the in the early nineteen hundreds, took out various different shapes, was made illegal by the British and continued to be kind of a um, political pariah due to its connections to uh, far left um, Republican paramilitary paramilitary forces during the Troubles. Mm-hmm. But uh through the Good Friday agreements, really became legitimized and has now become arguably the most vocal political party for Palestine in the EU. So Absolutely. And that particularly comes from uh, Ireland's recognition that their their history is similar to Palestine. Yeah. And that that goes for, you know, Ireland is— uh, has also recently developed the Better World Policy, which mm-hmm. intends to allocate 0.7% of Ireland's uh, global net income to international development and aid. So Ireland, Ireland's one of those examples of a country's a country that's made it, yes, and knows that they made it, mm-hmm. and also feels Wants like they to lift other people right, up. With feels it. like they have a vested interest in in helping other countries reach the Absolutely. same success that they were able to, um, you know, and and they got a love for the underdog. So. Yeah. Um, yeah. And wasn't the um, the Irish president at the time of Patrice Lumumba's presidency in Congo? Weren't they pretty good friends? Oh too? yeah, I yeah. mean, very similar yeah. to 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 JFK's friendship. Absolutely. Um, I just saw that picture of him 
reacting, reacting to, the, to yeah. the news of his death. Ireland had a very vocal um, condemnation of, yeah. of and I Belgium. Believe, I believe Lumumba's son was born in Dublin. Right. Yeah. So um, it seems like we're out of time, unfortunately. Unfortunately. But, um, you know, in short, you know, like we've talked about, Ireland is one of those examples of a country that kind of it, it kind of breaks the mold of what we expect from industrializing nations. You know, like we said, it's a geographically Western yeah. European country, but mm-hmm. due to many of the same problems that a lot of developing nations face, faced previously, settler yeah. colonialism, purposeful discrimination against different groups, mm-hmm. different religions, um, assimilation, lack assimilation, of education, lack of, lack of given education, famine due to purposeful mis- mismanagement. You know, um, Ireland went through it and really acted as a blueprint in the early 1900s for what decolonization in Asia, the Middle East, and Africa would look like throughout Absolutely. the 60s and the 70s, yeah. or the, the 50s and the 60s. So Ireland, and, and, and the crucial thing is Ireland knows this. Yeah. The, the, the country of Ireland has a very close tie to other developing nations. So One, a praise that I will consistently give Ireland is that they have never forgotten their history. Exactly. They have never forgotten where they came from. They have never forgotten the way that, you know, other quote-unquote developing countries supported them. And I am sure that they will always give that support right back. Right. So with that, uh, my name is Tyke Spaulding. And I'm um, Parker Beal. Thank you so much for listening, and uh, that's going to be all. Thank you. Thank you.